Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined as always by my colleague Kelly Vlahos. Today we will be talking to journalist Matthew Petty about the war in Gaza and how it is being covered in the media. But first, let's turn to some of the headlines from around the world. Kelly, what's your first story? Well, you know, it's crazy, but the Houthis seem to be the most aggressive group um, in the Middle East right now, aside from, from Israel and Hamas. I mean, they just hijacked, and I'm talking this week, hijacked a cargo ship that uh, ostensibly is owned by an Israeli businessman and run by a company in Japan. And they literally hijacked this ship um, in the Red Sea and it is now docked in Yemen. And basically the Houthis have said they've done this because of Israeli activities in Gaza. As you know, they have launched missiles at Israel from Yemen that have been intercepted by U.S. defense systems that are in in the Gulf right now. But the fact that they are acting so aggressively, I mean, some people have said that that this proves that they're an arm of the Iranian government. But this seems to be way out of line with even what Iran is doing in the region. And I, I don't know what you make of it all. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. So it it has been interesting to see how they've been acting uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, I I had sort of assumed that the the missile and drone strikes that they had launched in the direction of Israel was meant to signal that they were in solidarity with Palestinians, but that they weren't going to do very much more than that. Uh, The the seizure of this ship uh, certainly stands out as uh, fairly extraordinary, both in terms of what their capabilities are. I don't think people expected them to be able to do this uh, with, a, with a, you know, a helicopter landing on the ship and seizing the ship uh, with their own uh, troops. So that that was uh, remarkable in itself. Uh, and then that they're they're willing to take actions like that, which they, interestingly, they, they weren't prepared to do during the height of the war with the Saudis. Right. Uh, one of the standard lines during the, the war with the Saudis is, oh, the Houthis are a threat to shipping, they're a threat to shipping, we have to do something about it. And they left shipping alone. Uh, they, you know, occasionally they would fire off some missiles in the direction of some of our ships, but they they didn't actually threaten civilian shipping at all. And so it was it's it's it is surprising to me a little bit that they're willing to go that far uh, and and actually seize a ship on, on a fairly tenuous connection to Israel. Really, it's not even it's not even an Israeli flagged ship. So it's I'm I'm a little surprised that they're trying to do that. I, I think the the larger goal behind it is to show the Saudis uh, what they're capable of as part of their their jockeying or positioning in connection with peace talks in Yemen. But but really, I, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's a surprising new development. Yeah, I do agree with you, Dan. I think that this might be a little bit of show and tell uh, going on here. And they want, uh, they want to assert to the Saudis that, that they have some military leverage in the ongoing ceasefire negotiations. But I can't see how that might not go off the rails uh, if Saudi says, well, you know, if you guys are going to threaten us militarily, um, even obliquely, uh, then we might not want to continue these talks. <laughs> we want to find other allies in the region. So, yeah, this, this this could go either way, I guess, is what I'm saying, if that's their plan. Sure. sure. And yeah, now moving on to, to my first headline, or well, maybe, maybe the only headline today, uh, from the New York Times, the war turns Gaza into a graveyard for children. Uh, it was a disturbing read. It's essential reading for anyone that wants to understand what this war is doing to innocent civilians. 
in the article, they say there have been more than 15,000 airstrikes in Gaza since uh, the war began. Uh, it's one of the most intense bombing campaigns in modern history, uh, certainly among the most intense in this century. Uh, at least 12,000 people have been killed, including more than 5,000 children, and that doesn't count the many thousands believed to still be trapped under the rubble of collapsed structures. Uh, as the report says, if the figures are even close to accurate, far more children have been killed in Gaza in the past six weeks than the 2,985 children killed in the world's major conflict zones combined across two dozen countries during all of last year, even with the war in Ukraine, according to UN tallies of verified deaths in armed conflict. Um, so the, the physical and psychological toll that this war has already had on the people in Gaza is terrible, and the longer that it continues, it will only get worse. Uh, any thoughts on that, Kelly? Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think, go back to what we've been talking about on the show already and this um, unfair or um, uneven application of the United States' fealty or commitment to a rules-based order to international law. We've heard these concerns raised for two years over what is going on in Ukraine and Russian attacks on civilian communities in Ukraine and, and every child that dies in any war or conflict is a tragedy. But we're watching a scale that goes far beyond anything that we unfortunately had seen in, in Ukraine and yet the Biden administration has been so much more muted. I mean, we have Tony Blinken on Twitter, on video, talking about the war crimes that are committed when hospitals and schools are targeted. And he's speaking specifically of what was happening in Russia at the time. And obvious, the scale is so much larger in this case, but yet he can't even force himself to, to say the same things he was saying a year ago about potential war crimes happening in Ukraine. So this, this dissonance uh, is so underscored at this point. And uh, obviously you don't need me to point out that the rest of the world is seeing what they are calling hypocrisy on the part of the United States government in this regard. Yeah, definitely. And uh, just one last point. I think we're just about out of time for this segment. Uh, Spencer Ackerman wrote a really good piece in the Nation last week, uh, pointing out that this isn't that the, the rules-based order uh, isn't uh, just being ignored in the in the case of U.S. support for the war in Gaza, but the, the rules-based order basically creates exceptions for the U.S. and governments that it supports. Uh, that th this is the you know sort of what you would expect from the, the rules-based order where certain states are allowed to flout international law and everyone else is expected to follow it. And then this is the result. Our guest today is Matthew Petty. He's an independent journalist and a non-resident fellow at the Kurdish Peace Institute. He worked for various Jordanian news outlets as a 2022-2023 Fulbright Fellow. Previously, he worked as a reporter at Responsible Statecraft and a national security reporter at The National Interest. His work has appeared in The Intercept, The Daily Beast, and Reason Magazine. He also writes on his own Substack, Matthew's Notebook. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, good to finally get you on. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been reading your stuff for years, and I'm, I'm pleased that we're finally getting to talk to you about it. Um, as have I. I've been following your substack for uh 
pretty long time. Uh, thank you. I and before that. that attack, you know. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, and so, yeah, turning to the war in Gaza, uh, we had reports uh, just the last few days. UN officials recently visited the Al Shifa Hospital, uh, that had been the the center of uh, a lot of the fighting recently. Uh, they declared that it had become a death zone because of a lack of fuel, clean water, and other essential supplies. Uh, much the same might be said about the entire Gaza Strip at this point. Um, from from what you've seen, from what you've been uh, following in the news uh, and in your own uh, research, uh, how bad is the humanitarian crisis in Gaza now? I mean, look, I'm not on the ground there. Anything, I have the same access to information that, that um, you know, you guys do. Uh, the... The general situation, though, is as they described it. It's it's a death zone. There is, I mean, I think there's very small amounts of fuel getting in, and fuel is not just for cars. Fuel is for generators. Without fuel, you don't have refrigeration for food. You don't have um, medical equipment at hospitals. That was actually one of the um, the the big big things before the Israeli forces actually attacked uh, Shifa Hospital, which they have. They've overran it and evacuated it. Uh, they're the big, big problem there was um, no fuel for the generators. I mean, babies on incubators were dying. That was the famous image that the uh, Gazan medical professionals had kind of made sure that a lot of news outlets saw, um, that no fuel means that in a very, very direct way people will die. And that does seem to be the Israeli strategy overall has, has seems to be, I mean, <laughs> kind of what they – declared if not in exactly those words in the beginning which was that they were going to clear out the entire northern half of the gaza strip and force everyone to leave and they're doing so by making it unlivable i mean literally unlivable uh and yeah cutting off fuel bombing hospitals i think several different hospitals have been uh overrun by israeli forces now it's i mean i don't want to say funny but kind of grimly ironic that in the beginning of the war there was all this controversy like did israel or did it not bomb the athlete hospital uh and now that seems almost irrelevant because they have openly bombed a bunch of hospitals and said well this is justified because they're military targets and we can get into whether the justification actually holds up but yeah i think one thing to emphasize is just the total destruction of infrastructure that people need in a very immediate way to live yeah, and, and well, we've seen reports that uh, a huge percentage of the structures in northern Gaza have been uh, destroyed. Uh, that that northern Gaza is basically uninhabitable now, between the the devastation to the infrastructure and uh, the all of the leftover ordnance that is presumably there still uh, as a threat to to civilian life. Uh, and we've seen the World Health Organization condemning. This uh, what, what we've seen that this war on hospitals, I think, as they called it, uh, and just recently there were new attacks on the Indonesian hospital uh, in just the last couple of days, and so that's yeah, that's definitely been uh, an ongoing uh, feature of this war. Uh, I mean, while the the Biden administration's approach seems to be to sort of stay the course to to keep going with the, the same policies that they've had all along. And we saw that in the remarks that Brett McGurk made at the security conference in uh, Bahrain uh, last week, uh, where he, he also seemed to, to tie the release of humanitarian aid to the release of the hostages, which led to a lot of people uh, accusing the administration of endorsing collective punishment. Now they say that he didn't mean to do that. Uh, he, he wasn't actually making that connection, but 
that's what it sounded like at the time. Uh, one of the other things he said in that speech is that the normalization push with the Saudis wasn't intended as an end run around the Palestinians. I, I don't think uh, many people bought that. Certainly none of the governments at the conference were buying what the U.S. was selling. Uh, and so that, that brings us to the question of, of how much damage do you think the war has done and the administration's response to the war uh, has done to U.S. influence and credibility with other governments in the region uh, and beyond? I mean, in terms of governments of the region, the thing is, I don't think, like, for example, Mohammed bin Salman cares about Palestinians. I don't think he cares about anyone. I don't think he cares about anyone other than himself and his own power. Sure. Um, sure. So I don't think that, you know, uh, governments will moralize and stuff, but I don't think Arab governments, apart from maybe Jordan, because this is actually personal to the royal family, uh, the royal family is part Palestinian, but I don't think most governments in the Arab world, you know, are necessarily morally, you know, like going, they're not going to sanction the U.S. for for moral reasons. But uh, what is happening is that the, the U.S. support for, like, you know, being, participating in this U.S.-led order in which Israel is kind of a crown jewel or a centerpiece is becoming a political liability for our governments again. You know, for the longest time, the this was the kind of Abraham Accords vision that, it was an end run around the Palestinians that, you know, the Palestinian costs is just not something that Arabs care about. And therefore we'll just make the Arab governments, you know, build ties with Israel and the Palestinian issue. will just kind of keep pushing it, you know, into oblivion. But you see that's not possible because the amount of, because of the amount of like public sympathy there is for Palestinians in the Arab world. And I think a lot of outside observers I don't know, they kind of treat it often as just this like unreasonable hang up or this like irrational hang up that, oh, why do they? But, you know, it's it's for them, it's like a very real in the same way that, you know, Westerners care about Ukraine and the fate of the Ukraine, the fate of the Ukrainians, um, you know, because, you know, they're their neighbor, you're like Europeans for especially for Europeans. I'm talking to you from Europe now, like it's their neighbors, it's people they see coming as refugees, it's stuff happening to people next door. Arabs care about Palestinians, it's their neighbors and their people. And I think like even if Arab leaders can kind of ignore the Palestinian issue or sidestep it, they can't just be seen openly endorsing for moral reasons and reasons of self-respect. They can't be seen openly endorsing, you know, mass killing of other Arabs. And Muslim leaders can't be seen endorsing mass killing of other Muslims, even if, you know, strategically they would prefer to just reap the benefits of a, of being part of this U.S.-led order and and being aligned with Israel. So I think all these these governments are going to talk a lot of tough talk. The actual material measures, I don't think they're going to like join the war against Israel, but it it, it is now um, it's now. Uh, it factors into their calculations again. It's not an issue that they can just hide. It's something that has a kind of political urgency that they have to deal with. And I think there is a lot of resentment of the fact that the U.S. doesn't, like the U.S. is, in the very beginning of the war, they were talking about opening humanitarian quarters into Egypt, which kind of meant emptying Gaza's population into Egypt. And the Egyptians pushed back very hard, very publicly against that. And I think with Arab governments, there's a real sense of like the U.S. is going to try to foist 
the costs of the problems that Israel has created onto Arab states and that the U.S. the Biden administration does not really care about like the domestic political pressures that Arab leaders are under to to not be seen as an adjunct to, you know, mass killing of other Arabs. Thank you, Matthew, for coming on the show. Uh, great to hear your voice. And thank you for all of the, the good work and the excellent writing and analysis you've been providing over the last month or so. Um, I want to talk about one piece that you wrote for Responsible Statecraft regarding uh, the media and its coverage of what's been going on in Gaza. And you did a, a deep dive into how the media was talking about uh, the hospital attack, uh, the hospital attacks, plural, um, in Gaza. And specifically, you mention that the way the media is describing the health ministry is today, 31% of English media says Hamas run health ministry, as opposed to 7% who talked about the Palestinian health ministry or the Gazan health ministry before October 17th, before the Al-Hahi, Ahadli, Ahadli, sorry, and that there had been a marked turn in the way that the press was talking about this, which obviously fits the narrative that the Israelis want to put out, that everything, whether it be the ministries, the hospitals themselves, any any official uh, organization in Gaza is somehow terrorist-led. And therefore, we cannot take any of their figures, any of their estimates, uh, the death counts, um, seriously or, or, without, or um, without uh, a measure of, of serious skepticism, but it also taints the, the, the way that we're looking at the situation. I mean, observers from the outside looking in. Can you talk a little bit about your findings in, in this regard and, and what kind of impact you think it's having on the way people are interpreting events there? Great. So, um, Yes, as you you kind of summarized what what I found statistically. I mean, basically, after a few weeks into this war, I noticed the sudden appearance of this phrase, Hamas-run health ministry, and or Hamas-controlled, or um, some variation of that term. And I didn't really remember hearing the the Palestinian health ministry being described this way, uh, even in previous conflicts and you know rounds of combat where these you know, I've just, there was not any kind of dispute. They people would just cite it as the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza, and I actually ran a, a search. I actually decided to look at the numbers, and I went into this um, service that I subscribe to called the News on the Web Corpus, which lets you search basically how many times a phrase has been mentioned in, I think, twenty-one different countries' English language media. And when I put it in, I was I was shocked by how sudden the change was and when it happened, because basically my memory was right. Everyone had called it the Palestinian health ministry or Gaza's health ministry before October 17th. And there was a very, very sudden uptick in use of the term Hamas run health ministry. And what happened on October 17th was the bombing 
as we talked about earlier, the bombing of the Ahly Hospital, um, where in the very beginning, the uh, you know there had been a bombing at the hospital. Palestinian officials held a press conference, a very very sad press conference. I mean, surrounded with the literal dead in body bags, and said that Israel had committed a massacre. Uh, and also, there were very very high reports coming out in in English language media. I think they reported 500 dead. In Arabic media, there were reports of like a thousand dead. Then the Israelis came out and said this was actually a Palestinian attack, or it was a not an intentional Palestinian attack. It was a misfired rocket, and the evidence they had for it was not. I mean, they threw out contradictory things. They gave a video that showed a Palestinian rocket coming from one place. Said that's what hit the hospital. Then they showed on a map a completely different place, um, and they had this phone call that a lot of experts. Um, say is not even in the Gazan dialect uh, of of supposedly a Hamas official, you know, it, it was just not a very believable recording. So independent investigations have been inconclusive on, they, they haven't found any blast fragments. Um, it probably was not a 500 pound aerial bomb. It could have been an artillery round, a rocket, something of that nature. But the Israelis, in any ways, what happened is that the Israelis cast enough doubt on the Palestinian claims that I think in some news outlets, like including the New York Times, changed their headlines or corrected. And then the death toll it was still in the hundreds. It was still a very brutal, bloody attack, um, was not as high as the initial one, which very often happens in incidents like this. Um, and after that, this, the, the Israelis and the Biden administration, I think the Biden administration pushed this harder even than the Israelis, came out with a new line that said that the health ministry in Gaza is Hamas-run. It's controlled by Hamas. And, you know, like that, news coverage has changed, and they went from referring to it as the Palestinian health ministry, which implies that it's this technocratic, you know, organization that just kind of represents Palestinians in Gaza or Palestinian doctors in Gaza. They suddenly changed to calling it the Hamas-run health ministry, which implies that it's a propaganda arm. Right. And, you know, John Kirby, the the, the White House uh, national security spokesman, came out and, and, and said some pretty, I mean, just outright, you can't believe anything they say, or you can't take it at face value. Now, U.S. officials are turning around and admitting, like, yes, the health minister, the, after, after uh, uh, Biden and Kirby said what they said, the health ministry came out and published a list of every single casualty with the name age and ID number, which also kind of draws attention to why it's not just the Hamas run health ministry, because this, they enter this information into the same population registry as the health ministry in the West bank that the Israeli authorities use. Like, you know, this is not, yes, it is part the Hamas, you know, appoints a different health minister in Gaza because it's separate from the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. But at the end of the day, it's these is like, you know, hospital administrators and doctors and bureaucrats. And it's not on even though the health ministry has split politically, it's not unplugged. It, this is a Palestinian institution. It's not a Hamas institution. Um, and, you know, it's not even fully disconnected from the Israeli health system because, again, it's the same population registry that everyone's using. Uh, so media, 
but despite that, media was calling it the Hamas Health Ministry. And I think there has been a pushback recently. If I ran the numbers again, I guess that they're starting to go back to calling it Palestinian or Gazan. But there was a long period of time when when basically the White House had had and the Israelis had cast doubt on these numbers. And then English language media just accepted this framing. And I think it became even more sinister during the Israeli ground invasion when the Israelis openly started targeting hospitals, claiming that Hamas was using them for military right. purposes. And look, even if it is a Hamas-run health ministry, that's not the same thing as the armed group Hamas is using these hospitals. But just by repeating that term over and over and over again, you get people to kind of accept the premise that that hospitals are somehow battlefields. I mean, is this part of a uh, broader propagandist shift towards creating an image that everyone in Gaza, every Palestinian in Gaza is Hamas? So when you are listening to political debates here in the United States uh, between uh, right, far, you know, like very conservative Republican uh, influencers who are on their podcasts and on on shows and, and Fox News and whatnot and in their op-eds will not say that there are protesters on college campuses that are pro-Palestinian. They say now that they are all pro-Hamas. I was actually listening to a local conservative radio station uh, was last week, maybe the week before, where the host actually corrected himself mid-sentence when he talked about, I think it was maybe a member of the squad on Capitol Hill in her pro-Palestine, I mean pro-Hamas speech. And it was as though there had been some sort of talking points that went down that said, you must identify everyone in this way. Uh, as being pro-Hamas. And so I, do you see this as just sort of a, 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 big, uh, a bigger problem in terms of trying to manage the message and perception about who Palestinians are and what the reality is in Gaza? We know that it's much more complicated than just Hamas run this or Hamas run that. But when you're battling sort of like this, um, you know, the battle for perception and information, you know, these things do matter, right? In terms of their rhetorical value. I mean, I don't know how coordinated it is, but certainly this is the, it seems to be the talking point of someone who wants to delegitimize Palestinian suffering and delegitimize, um, you know, I think Palestinian national anything. This is, this is the key point. It's not just, it's not just the idea of guilt by association um where you know palestinians are all terrorists or something this, this is an old talking point but i think this is also an element of trying to constantly split palestinians in gaza from palestinians in the west bank um and to kind of like portray it like you know even even in a lot of news coverage that doesn't say you know, the term israel hamas war that's one term that's being used. And I think that makes it sound like this is some kind of surgical counterinsurgency and not just a wholesale ground invasion. Um, but even the term Israel Gaza war doesn't really like it, it doesn't really capture what's happening because this is, you know, Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank and inside of, you know, Israel proper 
see themselves as one people. And a lot of what's happening is happening in all three places, just like in 2021. Uh, even though there's not been a lot of news coverage of the West Bank, a lot has been happening in the West Bank, in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, I think huge numbers of people have been, huge numbers of Palestinians have been killed um, in the West Bank. I don't know about Israelis, but uh, certainly on the Palestinian side, by Israeli vigilante, like settler violence, and by the army. Uh, there has been, you know, an active insurgency. There were drone strikes in Nablus, which I think has not been seen since, I mean, Israeli airstrikes in West Bank cities happened maybe once in the past, since the past two decades. And and that had also only been a few months ago. Mm. Um, so this is a major escalation all over all of the entire Holy Land, uh, over all of Palestine. And um, this idea of, of, of calling everything Hamas not only tries to, you know, tar all Palestinian men, women, and children as gun-toting guerrillas, but also tries to divide, like, kind of deny their existence as a nation and deny their existence as one people and instead um, silo them off. Uh, That's a really different... good point because wasn't Netanyahu doing that already with his support of Hamas, his very cynical support of Hamas over the last 15 years, and that he envisioned this sort of splitting off or this keeping separate the Palestinians in Gaza uh, from the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinians in the West Bank, and it all blew up in his face. Yes, I think that's an important point. And I think it's not just Netanyahu. I mean, it's this is a broader project. Like, I mean, the the the, the narrative you hear often is from Israelis is like, well, we can't make a Palestinian state because we gave them a state in Gaza and look what it turned into. But when the Israelis withdrew from Gaza in 2005, Ariel Sharon pretty explicitly did that not to give them self-rule, but to to isolate them. The idea was, you know, the Israelis, you know, had controlled, and after the 1967 war, they took the West Bank and Gaza, which are called collectively the Palestinian territories. And the whole premise of the peace process from the 90s going forward was that these, you know, that is the state of Palestine. I, I, maybe not the premise on the Israeli side, but the kind of the international community's understanding was that is the state of Palestine. And, you know, the negotiations, you know, it's a two-state solution. that the, the, These are the boundaries of a Palestinian state. And what the Israelis did in 2000, and, you know, we are, the 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 problem here, or the, the thing preventing Palestinian independence is the existence of Israeli settlers, um, and Israeli settlements inside these territories. And so that's what the peace process is about. It's about drawing the final borders. Um, what Israel did in 2005, after, you know, a very long, sustained and, and bloody Palestinian uprising, was pull the settlers out of Gaza, withdraw the troops, and then seal it off. And this is no longer an area. And I think they actually tried to, I don't, remember exactly, so don't quote me on this, but I think they actually tried to make the legal argument of like, there's no occupation anymore because our boots are not on the ground. And this was rejected by their own um, foreign ministry lawyers who said, no, but you still control the exits and entrances and, you know, all the things a sovereign government would do. Um, and then, you know, later, the Hamas takeover is later, and that has to do with 
intra-Palestinian politics where there is a Palestinian civil war in um, 2006, 2007, and that, you know, ends up serving the the Israeli interests great because now there's two separate governments in the West Bank and Gaza. And, you know, there's a great article in Vanity Fair called The Gaza Bombshell, which describes exactly how this went down and exactly how Bush administration officials had had what their role in this was. Um, but yes, in, in general, the, the, the status quo, the Hamas run, everything was exactly what the Israeli right from Ariel Sharon to Benjamin Netanyahu wanted. And um, it very explicitly because they wanted to lop off uh, a million or two Palestinians from the Palestinian territories and take their independence off the table and uh, I think you're very right to say that this is blown up in Netanyahu's face because, uh, and I think that was Hamas's goal, was to make the status quo impossible to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know whether Hamas wanted such a big war and escalation. Uh, that, I think, is going to, you know, that's the kind of history that's going to emerge decades later, the full story of what happened in the planning and whether their attack on October 7th went according to plan or didn't. But uh and the aftermath of it but certainly i think their idea was to to recreate this unity of of just as it happened in 2021 to to make the status quo unsustainable and force israel to deal with the palestinian question like as a whole again wow Listen, Matthew, we have run out of time, but will you come back on the show to talk about part two, three, four, and five? Because I feel like I could ask you questions all day and uh, we haven't really scratched the surface, but I would love to have you back. Sure. Is there, could I make um, one more point before Absolutely. I go? Absolutely. Sure. Um, so yes, I alluded to it earlier talking about um, Israel treating hospitals as military targets. Uh, and I just want to be very you know, the evidence that Israel has shown so far uh, is they found or they claim to have found, I don't know, it, it could have been planted or not, uh, weapons in the basement of Rentisi Hospital and in the radiology room, Shifa Hospital. Um, the Geneva Convention, and they also have video of Hamas operatives bringing wounded hostages to the hospital. The Geneva Conventions are very clear that, you know, soldiers or prisoners being treated in hospitals is not military use. That's the whole point of a hospital is they're supposed to serve anyone who shows up wounded. And it actually, the article 19 of the fourth Geneva convention very explicitly says that the existence of like rifles, they call it small arms is not, does not mean a hospital is being used for military purposes because those rifles could have been brought there by wounded soldiers seeking treatment. So it could be the Israelis could find some evidence that Hamas was actually using these hospitals for firing rockets or something. That would be a war crime by Hamas, and that would be military use of a hospital. And that would, you know, allow under the Geneva Conventions an attack after a reasonable period of warning and and giving the hospital a reasonable chance to throw the fighters out, Um, which I, I don't think that's actually what happened. So, you know, the attack either way is, is not really legal. But 
whether or not more evidence emerges of military use, what they're showing now is not evidence of military use. International law is very, very clear on this point. And I think there's an attempt to almost rewrite international law and kind of gaslight people about what the rules of war are regarding hospitals. Absolutely. I And I please encourage you. And I know, I know you need no encouragement to keep writing about this because I think, I think when you talk about how um, the media is, is shifting its language, how it's accepting of certain narratives that are being put out there uh, by one side or the other and how that is affecting how folks in other parts of the world are reading the situation. I think that's very important. And uh, we all know what happened during the global war on terror and how we had been manipulated or the public had been manipulated into thinking one thing or another about the existence of terrorists in Iraq and the connections with Al Qaeda. And we know what happened there. So it's, it's, it's great to have people like you on the ground, you know, whether it be here or there, um, just keeping a, a spotlight on, on um, what these governments are saying and how they are, how they are using our um, mass media mediums to um, manage the message, so to speak. And I'm glad you're drawing attention to this, uh, too. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.